Good afternoon, everybody. Hope uh, hope everybody uh, survived this week. <laughs> it was a little uh, a little bit crazy uh, the markets, but um, I have a theory that if they stopped talking about point drops um, on the TV and in the news and just a percentage drops. Um, things to be a lot less volatile and people be a lot less panicking. People see a 500 point drop on the Dow and uh, completely lose their mind. And it's not that big of a deal. You know, um, at the end of the day, after all that's happened the last two weeks, I think we're what, 5% off an all time high? And I think if you talk to most people, they'd probably say they're 15 to 20% off the high. Just because of the way people on TV are talking and you read any news thing. And I'm sure if you're on Twitter or anything like that, your Twitter feed's full of people forecasting another 2008 scenario. Uh, which is just ridiculous. Um, but uh, I just have a little theory that I have. You know, if they come out and said, oh, the Dow dropped 1%. All right, whatever. No big deal. But like, Dowd, almost 300 point drop. You know, it's people, they just look at it differently. And 300 points used to be 3, 4%, right? Now it's, you know, just over one. So, um, sort of a little segue, but uh, sorry about that. A um, couple of housekeeping items. Um, for those of you, I don't know how to say it the right way. So, um, we're invested in the cannabis markets uh, with eight, with um, IIPR. I'm not invested in cannabis at all in the public markets in any other way simply because it's just insane right now. And um, uh, a lot of people have asked about doing some private investing in private cannabis companies on a local level. And um, I think I'm going to be able to do that soon. And for those people who are interested, uh, reach out with me. I'll be working with a group of people who are doing that and doing very, very well with it. Um, so for those of you who are interested in that, just send me an email and uh, I can get you their information. And um, nothing in it for me either way, whether you do it or not. So it's whatever. It's just people have mentioned it and talked about it, sent me emails about it. And um, I myself am very interested in it. So for those of you who have been curious or asking about that and who don't know how to do it or how to go about it. Um, very soon I'll have a way to do that. And then, um, when I do, um, you would be on, you know, you would talk to these people and I would, you know, I, I would not be a go between anything like that. So, um, just a, another segue. Sorry. So let's get to the questions. Cause I actually have quite a few questions this week. Uh, some really good ones, so let's talk about it. So, first, I'm curious to hear your take on the potential future of the value of Ward Village. That's uh, Hawaii, Howard Hughes. I watched HSC deep dive into this asset and, and I'm quite impressed. Now, at the end, they talk about the undiscounted, uninflated value of the residential component at $2.4 billion. Plus, they think they can increase the retail NOI by 50 to $70 million from these X and 20. It's almost as if the potential value is equivalent to the current value of the entire company. Thoughts? So, the deep dive, just so you know, um, I'm going to post the link to the deep dive so that um, you are able to watch it for yourself. It's really great. Uh, Wine Reb's on there and everyone's on there and they really go into what they can do there. 
Um, I, I agree. I don't think the potential value is equivalent to the current value there under the entire company. But I think if you look at it right now, uh, you could easily make a case for a three and a half to four billion dollar value at Ward Village. And the whole company is not five point seven billion right now. Um, Ward Village is, I mean, you know, they have six towers in some stage of operation, room for 20. And there's a severe housing shortage in Honolulu. And, you know, every, every tower they build is 95, 98% done. You know, some of them are 60, 70% sold within months after pre-sales. This is not, this is before a single shovel goes in the ground. They do pre-sales and these things start construction 60, 70% done. And then as they, as they build it, they open, you know, I think, I don't think, I don't think a single one at this point has opened less than 90% fully sold. So, um, it just goes to show you the quality of the work, the location, it's right on the ocean. You couldn't ask for a better location. Um, the design, everything like that. I just think that, uh, it's, I, I agree with it. So you have to watch the deep dive to really get into it, but, um, and I've, I've heard nothing on the strategic review. The company is very tight-lipped about it. Um, I kind of feel like something's going to happen. Um, but obviously you don't know what. So there's a lot of different scenarios that could happen. Um, I think the most logical thing is some sort of deal with the income-producing properties. You know? Um... You know, whether that's kind of spun out into a publicly traded REIT and shareholders get a chunk of it and it's the REIT still sits under the Howard Hughes development umbrella as a holding company, um, then you'd obviously have two separate shares of stock, right? You'd have Howard Hughes holding company, you'd have shares on the REIT, and then obviously whatever the combined value of those that would be your value of the combined company and that you could make the argument that that would allow for a proper valuation of the income producing properties that I think right now are vastly undervalued. Um, and then what you would have left would be the holding company valuation. Um, combine those two and boom, there's your stock price. So I think that's quite possibly the easiest way to do it. And there's other things that could sell assets like that, but I, I really... You know, the only assets to really sell um, would be the ward area, the seaport, you know, maybe something. And then there's a bunch of smaller assets that really I don't think make a whole lot of sense to sell um, because I don't think you're going to get, you're not going to get a valuation for them or a monetary gain from them. That's going to, I think, materially affect the stock price. I think everyone agrees is vastly undervalued. So I think you'd have to sell something large for that to accomplish. And then selling something large kind of inhibits the future operations of the company. So I don't get that. So I think whatever's going to happen sort of has to, has to happen with the income producing properties in some way to structure that. Now, they said before they don't want to do something with them because of the NOIs that they have and because of the, you know, you... You're allowed to, you know, upfront depreciation. You're allowed to expense. Um, so that would mean a higher tax bill. Um, 
but maybe there's a way to structure that so that they don't completely transform from the C-Corp to a REIT. And if they maintain a majority ownership of the REIT portion, maybe that wouldn't trigger that sort of effect. So we'll see what happens, but um, I don't think... They're not the kind of people, management's not the kind of people to just engage a firm to explore strategic scenarios if they weren't serious about doing something, right? These guys aren't, they're not promotional. They don't play games. They don't do shit like this for headlines and for a bump in the stock price, da 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 Because each one of these guys got four or five more years on their warrants that they all just bought that they can't hedge or sell in any way. So if the stock price jumps for a year to 180, right? It, it means it's meaningless for them because they can't touch those warrants for five years. So they need something that's going to be long-term beneficial. And these aren't the kind of guys who just do shit like that. Um, so if they're doing something, they're serious about it and they want to seriously look at other options. Um, so that's kind of where we are there. So um, in your last podcast, you stated, hopefully they eliminate the senior preferred GSE stock. Can you please explain? Oh, um, so this is about the GSEs. So right now you have, right now all the preferreds that anyone who owns preferred shares in the company own are junior preferreds. The senior preferred stock is what the government, the treasury holds. That's the one that is now getting, instead of a 10% annual dividend that could not be paid down, right? They're getting the net worth sweep, all the profits of the companies. So if you eliminate the, so you can eliminate the net worth sweep, but that means they still have to pay 10% on the $185 million backstop annually. Okay. If you eliminate the senior preferred stock, declare it paid back because the government's been paid, you know, I think we're up to 20 billion, 25 billion in excess of not only what the GSEs were loaned, but what, what, what the GSEs would have been paid with the 10% dividend then you could say, look, this has been paid back. You know, we're good. Um, we don't need any more. We're going to eliminate the senior preferred stock. That eliminates that, A, it eliminates a class of shareholders, and B, it eliminates that 10% annual dividend they have to pay on that. So um, I, don't, I don't see a scenario where they can recap and release them without getting rid of it. But, I mean, you know, until... Until you see it in writing, you never know. So it was more of a off-the-cuff comment that when they eliminate the net worth sweep, they also eliminate the senior preferred stock because then the companies would be able to start to recapitalize with organic earnings, retained earnings, much faster than if they still have to pay that 10% dividend every quarter to Treasury. So that's what I meant by that. So any comments about the investment of Ackman of the 3.5% of Buffett funds? Uh, that's Bu that Berkshire Hathaway, not Buffett funds. That, uh, that should be Berkshire. Um, yeah, you know, well, I guess what struck me the most about that is people freaked about it. I mean, it was, you would, it's almost like people acted like he went, you know, 85% into cash and dumped all his money in treasuries and some panic move or something. Um, you know, he's been a Buffett fan his whole life. Whitney Tilson tells a story that at Harvard, he was talking to Bill Ackman and wanted to learn about investing. And Bill Ackman told him, so this, I mean, this is when they were, in, when Whitney was in school, so this is probably got to be at least 20, 25 years ago, maybe longer. 
Uh, he told, Bill told him, first thing you do is go read everything Warren, Buttons, Warren Buffett's ever written. So, I mean, you know, and I, I think that because he's an activist investor, people always assume that anything he does is going to be an activist situation. And clearly, it's impossible to do that at Berkshire, right? Um, he's been at the Berkshire meeting every year asking questions. So he's obviously owns Berkshire personally because he's at the meeting. You can't go to the Berkshire meeting unless you uh, have shares or get a, you know, um, press credentials. So I, I'm not sure why people were so shocked about it. I, I, I kind of half, you know, I guess even investors of his were like, you know, well, why we could just buy Berkshire ourselves, da 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 da, you know. But probably most of them don't even don't even own it. Um, I think maybe he sees Berkshire as being undervalued, and that Berkshire is a safe place to put some money. Uh, you know, he may have sold out of investment A, um, had a lot of cash laying around. He put eleven percent of his fund in it, so his fund's about seven billion dollars. So, um, you know, he put a lot of money into it. So maybe he views it as. You know, I don't have another investment right now. My other investments have risen a lot, and I don't want to make them too big of a position. So where can I put this money? It's not going to earn anything sitting in cash. So I'll just put it in Berkshire. I think Berkshire's undervalued, so I can probably make more on it than that. Berkshire's not going to drop a huge amount of value because it's, it's pretty stable. And it's liquid. I can get in and out whenever I want. So... I think that's probably what it was. I don't think it was anything more than that. I think people are. I think people in the media were just trying to make a much bigger deal out of it um, than than it was. So, um, oh, this is about the GSEs. The only question: why the release of the White House proposal is not happening? I I have no idea. You know, I you know I I only know what people have said. And so it's, it's, we're just waiting like everyone else. You know, I've said it more than once and I still think when anything ends up happening, it's going to happen on a Friday night. Um, they were going to want to give everyone as much time to digest, digest what the plan is, how things are going to be affected um, before the markets open and the stock starts trading and mortgage markets start, mortgage bonds start trading and, Banks start trading and things like that. So I think they're going to want to give as much time as possible. So I think whatever's going to happen is going to happen at 4.01 on a Friday. Like give everyone more than 48 hours to digest it before Monday morning markets open. So, um, but other than that, I don't have anything. I'm sorry. Um, what do you... What do you think of today's whistleblower report on GE? I have browsed the report and think it's very impressive convinced. The other hand, GE's defense is weak and vague. Do you think it's a good idea to switch from long to short now? So here's the thing. So Markopoulos, Mar 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 however you pronounce his name, him and his team spent seven months on this. Okay. To my knowledge, I don't believe he's ever gone public with something and been wrong. I know he's exposed a bunch of Ponzi schemes. Obviously the most famous one being Madoff. I know he's exposed other things. And been whistleblowers on other things. To the justice and the SEC. And 
you know, that's how he kind of makes his money because they pay out a certain percentage of what's recovered or whatever to the whistleblower. Um, I don't think he's been wrong. My problem with GE and the reason that I kind of decided to get out was that GE's defense was to immediately claim because they're short or he's working with a hedge fund that's short um, that it's just market manipulation. And I hate that defense. I hate it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not always a signal because obviously, you know, if you look at like Herbalife, uh, they said the same thing about Ackman and their stock rallied. Although, you know what? In many ways, Ackman was right. Herbalife did get fines from the FTC and did have to change their business practices. They just didn't get the death knell from the, SC, from the FTC that Ackman thought they would. So the stock keep, 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 keep kept rising. Um, and I think that part of that reason was because no one at the FTC wanted to admit that they've had this massive fraud going on under their nose for 25, 30 years and no one caught on. Uh, and I think that was probably more of the reason why it wasn't more of a... Um, uh, a harsher punishment than it was. Um, there was a lot of CYA going on there. So, back to GE. I really hated that response. The other response was for them to go out and buy shares on the open market. The directors did. Culp bought another $2 million on the open market, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, okay, that's, that's good. Um, but there was one interview I saw Markopoulos do uh, in which he said, I mean, in, you know, uh, some people came out, immediately came out and defended GE, right? Immediately. And I'm sorry, but those defenses were worthless to me. This guy put out a 174-page report going back years on the accounting of GE. And there were people within hours saying the report was bullshit. It's not, it's not possible to do an analysis of that report in that time period and have any opinion whatsoever. So anybody who came out yesterday and said that it's complete and utter bullshit, that it's just market manipulation, short da, 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 I'm sorry, but that is completely and utterly invalid to me. Utterly invalid to me. And even today, some of the responses that I've seen from GE are very vague, very top-level stuff, nothing digging down. No spec, no spec, Oh my God, my no specific, um, detailed rebuttals to any of the allegations in the report. Right, and GT put a press release this morning, basically regurgitating what was said on TV yesterday and saying, in fact, we believe it so much that these people went out and bought shares, but no specific rebuttals to anything he said, other than you know we're required by. The law we uh, with the Baker Hughes transaction and things like that. So I'm not yet yeah, it bounced today, but you know this this is what happens, right? Um, and I got out because GE's been a frustrating investment. I think Culp is a great CEO. I honestly do. But if there's anything to these allegations, it doesn't matter how good he is. They're in deep shit. If the allegations are false, 
and wrong, GE still is struggling in this turnaround. So it's kind of so the, the situation is kind of like, okay, if if the report's wrong, what happens? Well, the stock probably regains the ten percent it lost and maybe a little bit more, but they still have the underlying issues they've had that cause it to be an eight nine dollar stock, and it's going to take a, a while for those to be fixed and things like that. If it's right or marginally right, you know, let he's saying they need to take twenty seven billion dollars and more reserve. Let's say they only have to take ten. This is in addition to what they've announced they have to do. Well, they don't have it. So even if he's partly right, the stock could get crushed from here. So in my mind, the risk-reward just wasn't there. There wasn't a lot of reward to the report being completely wrong. And on various levels of the report being, if the report's completely right, they're done. If the report is marginally right, they're in trouble. If it's a little bit right, they're going to suffer for a while. So there's a lot of scenarios and none of them are like, this is amazing, you know, whatever. You know, with the, with the going back to Herbalife again, with the Herbalife thing, it was a, either the FTC came out and cleared them and the stock was going to go jump or the FTC came out and would say, no, the stock's going to get crushed. So there, your, your risk reward there's pretty, pretty, um, pretty black and white, right? So if you believe the FTC was going to clear them, you're good. If you believe the FTC was not, you're, you're good on the short, right? That, that's your position. This is so opaque and there's varying degrees of right. And, and you know, in, in Herbalife's case, the FTC came out and, and you know, they, they, they found them guilty of bad practices and forced them to switch and, you know, came out and did a thing, you know, whatever. And, but they, then they find them some bullshit money, made their trades or practices and it really didn't affect the company. So it was a slap on the wrist. There's no slap on the wrist here if this report's right, which is the difference, which is my problem. And then I look at my portfolio, I'm like, you know, IIPR is down to 105. I think the risk reward there over the next two years is far greater than GE. So I could put money. I haven't, I haven't done anything with the money yet. I'm just saying that as, as I looked across the portfolio, you know, there's other places I could put money. I could buy more preferred stock in the GSEs, which, you know, I'm pretty sure is going to be more than a double in a year or two. And I don't think GE is going to be 16 to $20 in a year or two. So as I looked at it, I said, you know, my downside here is tremendous. My upside is marginal. And there's a lot of questions here. And this guy, this isn't, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't just some regular hedge fund making these accusations. This, I mean, this guy has nailed a lot of people and nailed a lot of things. And you know what? I, I think the fact that he fully disclosed his position, fully disclosed how he's getting paid, I, I commend him for that. I do. A lot of people wouldn't have done that. And he's getting crucified for it, but okay, so what? You know, so maybe, you know, what we don't know is how this the deal with this hedge fund came about. Maybe he just he he'd said he decided to work on GE on his own. So he's maybe he started working on GE and new people in the hedge fund world were like, hey, I GE's a fraud. And I got this report that proves it. You know, I'll let you see it. And let you go through it and make your place your, your your short bets accordingly before I release it. But I want compensation. Maybe that's how it worked. You know, I think people are kind of insinuating the short the, the hedge fund was like, I want a short GE. Although one has to wonder why this didn't happen 
you know, eight months ago when GE was 16, 17 bucks, but whatever, I want to short GE and I need you to go out and write a report that GE's trash. That's what people are implying. And Markopoulos is a pretty holier-than-now figure in what, like his ethics and things like that. And I don't think he'd be part of something like that. So, again, we don't know for a fact, but I'm, again, I'm just basing this on other things. Uh, he went after Madoff for years before someone finally listened to him. Um, and, you know, honestly, the reality is no one ever did, right? No one ever really listened to him. He exposed Madoff the regulators. He exposed, and, you know, of course, the analyst community today is rallying behind GE, right? Because, well, but let's be honest, even that's questionable because none of them want to admit that, oh, Jesus Christ, we missed this. We were analyzing GE and not a single one of us came across us. The one that's closest is the uh, Steve Tusi, right? He's thinking there's more downside. I don't know what he's come out instead of the report. Um, that would be interesting. But, you know, of course, the analysts rallied around GE. Um, and that, you know, that's all. All those things are meaningless to me. Um, you know, they just don't want to admit they were wrong. So they're going to they're gonna back GE and pray to God that... Um, the report, nothing happens with the report. Um, so I, I'm sorry, that was a really long answer, but uh, but as far as going short, I mean, I don't, I just don't want, I don't, I don't, I, I think if he's right, the stock gets crushed. If he's a little right, the stock gets hurt. If he's somewhat right, the stock goes down. Um, you know. I, I'm not going to short it just because things like this tend to be a little volatile and really crazy. And I kind of want to stay away from a gunfight. So, especially when I can't, I'm not a forensic accountant, so I can't handicap it at all. Other than to say he hasn't been wrong yet. But the flip side of that is, well, everyone's wrong once in a while. So we don't know. Um, the price of CHK dropped recently. On June 19th, the interest coverage is operating income. So that's 1.59. Uh, operating income, internal expense, 1 equals 1.59. Relative safe, however, is current ratio and quick ratio are both 0.62, less than 1, which pose the risk of Chapter 11. How do we measure the risk of CHK going to Chapter 11? If at the end we find there's a real, no real liquidity problem, should we invest more heavily into it because the current price is so dirt cheap? So well, we, write, we know right now that CHK is not free cash flow positive. Okay, we know that. That's their goal. They have assets that are. And they have assets that are valuable that they could sell to raise money. And at the end of the day, they have $600 million in debt coming due the next um, two years. That's it. They just refinanced over a billion dollars and moved it out to 2026. Um, the refinancing of it did not require any additional assets to be guaranteed by, 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 for moving it. So that meant when the bank went through the books, the bank was relatively satisfied to keep the terms the same and to move out the maturity of that loan. If the bank was worried they weren't going to get paid back, 
They would have wanted a higher rate. They would have wanted more assets to be secured by the loan. They would have done something different. But they didn't. So that tells me the bank is relatively secure in that. I don't think they're going under. I think they have, they've stopped drilling in the Haynesville area. I think they're going to sell that asset, which is a large asset, which would raise money and pay down the debt. And I think the biggest problem with Chesapeake is that it's, a, it's optics. Okay. Natural price, natural gas prices keep falling. Oil prices keep falling. So they're going down with it. Right. Which is, and you have to look, yes, Chesapeake's gone down a lot. But the entire oil patch has gone down. TPL has gone down. Kinder Morgan has gone down. Williams has gone down. Anything related to energy has gone down. This isn't a Chesapeake. The price drop in Chesapeake isn't utterly and solely related to Chesapeake. Yes, because it's a dollar forty or dollar thirty-five a share, it's more volatile than the others than an Exxon is going to be. But it, 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 it's. I would be concerned if it was sinking like this and energy energy was rising. If everything else in energy was going up and this was falling, then it would be concerned. You notice, if you notice, it trades with oil right now, or natural gas. If price of oil and gas go up, it goes up. Price of oil and gas go down, it goes down. Oil's been on a slide recently, so it's, go, it's, and it's going down in price too. I mean, the reality is they're hedged. They're 80% hedged for the rest of the year, but that 20% is gonna take a hit with the drop in prices. I think that they're either going to refinance the other, 300 million, other 600 million coming next to deals and move it out, or they'll sell an asset and pay it off. I, I just think that's what's going to happen. Um, they're plateauing their natural gas production next year, and they're going to increase oil production, which will increase their, free, their, their gold to get into free cash flow positive because the Texas um, assets they have are free cash flow positive. And they're free cash flow positive until oil hits $39 a barrel. And I don't think oil is going down to $39 a barrel. So now would I be adding to Chesapeake here? I haven't, but I own a decent amount. So, you know, I'm just waiting. So they, you know, they do need to move that debt or pay it off via an asset sale. So that needs to happen. So is there some risk in the stock? Absolutely there is, which is why it's about 40, because there is that risk. Maybe they can't refinance that debt. Maybe they can't move that debt out. Maybe there's something they can't do, but they have plenty of liquidity, right? They're not in a cash crunch. They're not, you know, they're not garage selling assets, in a fire, garage sale, fire selling assets. Right, they're waiting to get good pricing on it, and that's what they've done in the past. Um, I think that a lot of people are focusing on the share price, which, were it not for the dilution from the Wild Horse acquisition, would be a lot higher. But I think the Wild Horse acquisition is going to prove to be a brilliant one. It already has, because it's already increasing. It's already improving the financials of the company internally. And there's already uh, now another asset that's free cash flow positive that that cash can be deployed 
to other places or to do other things or to be deployed, redeployed there to increase oil production there. So that I, I'm it's the same place I was with Chesapeake. So, um, what are the lessons learned for investment in Herbalife? How do I, oh, <laughs> that's actually kind of funny because uh, I just spent quite a bit of time talking about it. Um, Why well, I, I don't. Herb, that's a tough one because, I mean, at the end of the day, as I, as I said before, the thesis, okay, I mean, and let's, but if we have to look back at it, I mean, herbal life wasn't a complete flop as an investment. You know, like, I don't know, you know, we made great money in some puts. We made 90% in some puts that we sold back in 2000. We closed them in 2015. So, I mean, we, we did decent in it. But I think that the problem with Herbalife, and it's, that's just, I don't think there's a huge lesson to be learned in, her, in Herbalife because at the end of the day, the thesis and the reason for going short in it was turned out to be basically correct. They were not doing things well. They were sanctioned by the SEC. I mean, sorry, the, the FTC. The FTC just chose not to put them out of business like they had done other pyramid schemes. So, you know, this, I, I, guess, I guess if we were still short it, I mean, I haven't been in it for years and years and years, I guess if we were still short it, still praying for something else to happen, to say the lesson be like, you look, you know, when you just cut your losses and get out. But, you know, we did. We got out and the, the F, FTC just didn't do what everyone thought it was going to do. And there's, I don't think there's any way to handicap that. Or predict what they're going to do. So, I mean, that's, that's one of those ones where you just got to kind of shrug your shoulders and walk away because, you know, you, you looked at two arguments for it. You did your research. You chose one side. You turned out to be pretty much right, but the regulatory body that was, could have done something about it chose to do nothing. So, all right, you kind of shrug your shoulders and you walk away. And you're like, all right, what can I do? So, um, hold on, get back to the questions. Any new thoughts on investment in uh, preferred shares? No, uh, nothing than what I shared earlier. Um, oh, so let me see. So FHFA head stress test comes out, and I'm gonna I'll obviously do the link to that either. I mean either also. Um, I forgot to put the um, link on my question sheet. What I do is I put all these things on a sheet, and then I so I at the during the week, so I don't have I don't have to go through all these emails and delete one by mistake, and then try and find them stuff like that. So I just forgot to put the link on it. So Fannie and Freddie did stress tests and uh, came out with them, and it looks and it was a <coughs> Dodd Frank highly stressed scenario. Looks like they'd lose in a highly stressed scenario about $55 billion. 
and um, the scenario was housing prices dropping. Uh, here it goes. Um, Long-term treasury spreads on domestic events of great corporate bonds for treasury increased to 5.5%. And by the third quarter of 2019, while the spread between mortgage rates and 10 years increased to 3.5%. In addition, equity prices has fall by approximately 50% by the end of 2019, and equity market volatility dropped, increases substantially. Home prices declined by about 25%, and commercial real estate prices fall by 35% to the third quarter of 2019. These declines represent a less severe downturn in real estate markets compared to the 30% home price decline and 40% commercial real estate price decline that applied the 2018 DFAC reporting cycle. And that's okay because we don't have the same conditions in the housing market we had then, right? We don't have the no income, no revocation loans. We don't have strippers owning four houses in Vegas because they could buy with no money down and because they're going to, housing only goes up, they're going to refinance them. So it does, doesn't go up and they can't refinance them. Four houses go in the market at once. We don't have those conditions now. Um, home equity is actually at its highest percentage versus outstanding mortgage debt ever so the housing market's in much much better shape so not going to that draconian level is um um is fine um and it also um um unemployment increases of 3.8 to 10 percent and the inflation inflation rate falls to 1.25 percent because you're so then you're almost at deflation and then rises to proxy two percent by the second half so that was basically a scenario in the the horizon of that was from um december 31st 2018 to march 31st 2020 that was the alleged time frame that they were dealing with when they did these results and the stress test came out and cumulative losses, yeah. That um, they'd lose about $50 billion. And the question is, if this is true, is this going to affect how much they need to raise? I don't think so. Because obviously you can't say, because what would happen then if, if they had, you know, a $50 billion buffer and they lost the buffer, then we'd be right back where we were, right? They would have to, they would have to go to the government because just to, because what would happen then is people said, the GSEs have $50, $50 billion in reserve capital or $60 billion in reserve capital. And right now, the cumulative losses of $50 billion, people would panic, right? And you'd need another government intervention in the GSEs. And, you know, as, and even before this got to that level, as they were, and losses were increasing 20 million, 30 million, 40 million, people always, people would then panic and go, they're going to lose 80 million. They don't have it. Here we are again. Housing's going to collapse, and then that would exacerbate a lot of other the scenarios in the in the thing. So maybe instead of housing prices dropping twenty five percent, they go down forty percent because people think, "Oh shit, here we go again. I need to dump this fucking house and get out of this right now because prices are going to drop under the twenty percent, and I'm going to retire soon, 
and I just need to dump my house now. And then you start getting mass panic and people trying to sell houses that they really shouldn't be selling. So the GSEs are going to be required to have a buffer that even in this scenario, they are so well capitalized that there's just no need to worry about them. That they've changed their business practices so much, the quality of the loans they have, the equity that's in those loans that they are insuring is so much better and their reserves are so much higher <coughs> that even if we get this draconian scenario, they're going to be absolutely fine. That's what needs to happen. That needs to be the mindset of the market. That needs to be what people know. Because they have to be able to come out and say, you know, we have more than enough money reserves to handle these losses, assuming they are even realized kind of thing. Um, they can't even get up close to where they are. Because again, you don't know the future. Like the, right now we could say, you know, oh, if they have 70 billion in this scenario and the 50 billion losses are fine, but you don't know that at the time when this is happening. You don't know that the losses are gonna stop at $50 billion. You don't know that things are gonna keep getting worse, right? In this scenario, we know that because that's what we're saying. But in real life, when this is happening, this is playing out in real time, you don't know. So that's, I guess that's my response to that. I don't think it's going to affect how much they have to raise. And honestly, if you're talking a difference of $100 billion and $90 billion, they're going to have them raise the higher number just because they want to be able to put it to bed you're going to, no matter what they do, you're going to have critics and they just want to be able to say, look, we just did these stress tests. Even in the worst case scenario, we have over twice the amount of equity buffer that we would need here. So even if something similar to 2008, 2009 happened, we would be fine. And that's just what, that's what needs to happen. So, um, I got a comment on IIPR, um, that I wanted to share the one and it, it per perfectly encapsulates my thoughts on it. Um, says the person said, on the one hand, the cannabis market is going to be absolutely huge as legal recreation use spreads across the USA. I believe that. And with tight state controls over the MSOs, there are likely to be some giant winners in the growing distribution brands and so forth. Agreed. Like for instance, in Massachusetts, You know, the one thing about the Kennedy Center people are always saying is that um, uh, that pot stocks are in cannabis stocks are in trouble because they can grow pot so much cheaper in like Venezuela and Colombia that um, as it comes up here, as that is as it's legalized here and they import it, that the local growers are going to get crushed. And that's not accurate. For instance, even if they federally legalize it, state laws trump distribution, right? The only thing legalizing it federally does is say, we're not going to rescue for it. You can bank them now. You can get loans at banks. It's not descheduled uh, narcotic. And they just eliminate that and say that. But they're already letting states legalize it. So federally legalizing pot, I don't think it's going to have the huge impact some people think it's going to. Now, what it'll do is make it legal in the states that currently it's not legal in. 
So that will help. But in the states, it's already legal. I don't see much of a change. Now, for Mass in Massachusetts, for instance, if you want to sell marijuana in Massachusetts, you got to grow it. Here. So you can't, you can't import pot from fucking Venezuela and sell it in Massachusetts. So, and a lot of states are very similar. So I don't think that that's a big worry. And that's kind of a segue, but I'm just trying to illustrate there's a lot of misconceptions going on about about the industry. And no one's really doing a good job of clarifying it. And I think it's because the laws in every state are so different on sourcing, distribution, sale, things like that, that I don't think that... um, I don't think anyone has a handle on it nationally yet. And so the flip side of that is that if no one really has a handle on it on a national level yet, those people making statements like that just don't know what they're talking about. Anyone who tells you that they're going to start importing marijuana from Colombia and they legalize it and it's going to crush local growers is just wrong. Because the states are going to want to protect the revenue they're getting off the local growers. So what are states going to do? They're going to say you can't import marijuana from Venezuela or Colombia or wherever else. You can only import it from here or maybe a neighboring state if they strike up some sort of an agreement. Because the states don't want the local growers to go out of business. They, want, they tax the hell out of it. They want that tax revenue. They want those jobs. And if they start letting, allowing the importation of marijuana from Colombia or Venezuela or Mexico or wherever, they're going to put those guys out of business. That's not good for them. So, again, I'm sorry, segue, but... Um, likely some giant winners in the growing distribution banks and so forth. Yet, so, yet so many of these stocks are just disasters at the present time. Show much how much risk there is in picking the right companies with the right management and operations excellence. And with their equity value crushed... How will they raise funds that need to expand production and meet demand? There's the point. IIPR is in an enviable position to provide capital to build the infrastructure the industry definitely needs as they're able to raise money cheaply, invest it in triple net leases at a very high rate of return, then do it all over again. That, that, that perfectly illustrates the value proposition IIPR brings and why I'm so excited about this stock over the next two, three, four years. The public market side of equity stocks, the recreational ones, the Canopy, the Aurora, da-da-da-da-da, they're going through their growing pains. The, the industry's going through growing pains. The private side of the market in IIPs, IIPR's little niche is just exploding. It's just, it's just literally explode. I can't begin to tell you people the growth on the private side of the market. What's going on here? It's just, it's stunning what's happening. States have essentially created mini fiefdoms or mini oligopolies in their production, distribution, sale of cannabis in their own states. And if you get in on one of those. It's amazing. It's, it's, it is stunning what's happening. 
And in IIPR, they just filed a $250 million shelf registration today to raise more money. Now, we don't know if they're going to do it in, in warrants or rights offering or debt or more equity. Who knows? They're probably going to do it in some sort of, or they could do convertible, convertible preferred stock. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I just think it's going to be either a rights offering, they're going to sell warrants, or they're going to do another equity offering. And the money, they're getting money so cheaply. And they can't, you know, if you remember back when they reported the beginning of the year, they reported, they said they had $50 million in deals at some stage of negotiation and a pipeline of another 100. They've deployed, I think, $70 million to date. And the pipeline's at $200 million now. They are just getting flooded with opportunity and flooded. And it's gotten to the point now that when they're signing a lease, and this is what they did in um, oh, Michigan, I want to say Michigan, is not only did they sign a lease with this, with this um, grower, in the lease, they said they have the right of first refusal if the grower decides to open another greenhouse and gets offers from another REIT to help them. That's unheard of. They have so much power right now that they're able to negotiate a lease that says, if you want to open up another, another place and you get terms from any other company to help you finance and open that grow house, that facility, we have the right of first refusal to match that. In which case, you'll be with us. That's amazing. They are effectively the only one in the market, and now they're signing leases that effectively put them in control of potential competition edging in on their space. It's incredible. It's incredible. Now, I don't know if all the new leases have. They just signed a couple, and I haven't seen them yet. But I know it was the one in Michigan. Was it Michigan or, or Illinois? It was Michigan or Illinois. I'll look it up and clarify it later. But yeah, they have right of first refusal on any future facilities that company builds, whether or not they want to participate in it and at what terms. Stunning. Stunning. So I don't know how they're going to raise the money. Um, I don't, I understand the dilution concerns, but there's only 11 million shares outstanding right now. And you're growing earnings a hundred percent a year. You're growing the dividend 80% year over year. I mean, the growth is just staggering. And it's long-term growth. It's 15-year triple net leases. So I'm very, very excited about what's going to happen with this company in the future. If there was a rights offering or a warrant offering, I'd be highly inclined to participate in it if it was possible. So um, we'll see. Um, last question. Not a huge fan. Of, I don't know how long I've been going for. Um, Oh, geez, almost an hour. This is a long one. I'm sorry. I'll wrap this up quick. Not a huge fan of GE, but your sale 
seems to be kind of a knee-jerk reaction, especially in light of some other investors' comments, purchases, no thoughts or everything. No, none whatsoever. Um, GE always already was a complicated, frustrating, entangled turnaround. I think this just made it <clears throat> 10 times worse. This is this stuff with GE's, yeah, it went down 10% yesterday. I think it was up 5% today at one point. I haven't looked at it in a while. This is just getting started. Okay? It, he's given this stuff to the Justice Department, to insurance regulators. They got to go through all this stuff. This is just beginning. And he also said that he held some stuff back, not in the report, that he's working with authorities on. And I don't think he specified whether it was Justice Department, insurance regulators, um, SEC, whatever. So what, 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 what he has and what is out there isn't even all of what he has. So this is going to drag off our GE for a very long time. And there's so many other opportunities that we have which have more immediate time frames. And I think um, I have a, a new investment uh, coming up probably next week. <coughs> um, maybe I'll walk through it on the pod. If I can get it done and finalize it and decide this is something I want to do, um, maybe I'll do it on the podcast next week. Maybe that might be a good way to do these things. I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it works out. Um, or you know, obviously if anything new news comes up with it between now and then, we'll have to wait and see. But um, I'd rather take that money in GE and put it into this new investment that I think has a much shorter time of frame, um, um, much more upside, and a hell of a lot less um, risk to the downside. So that's where I am with that. So I have babbled on way too long. I apologize for everybody. Um, that's it for this week. I hope everyone has a, as usual, a fantastic weekend. I hope the weather's beautiful wherever you are. And um, I hope it's a safe and healthy one for everyone involved with you and your families. I will uh, be back next week and I'll talk to you later.